This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. Anderson has Jordan. Allen shakes Gray gets two! Gilmore on the to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry. Jordan. Open. Chicago with the lead. Hello and welcome to the Over and Back podcast. I am Jason Mann and joining me is my co-host Rich Krejci. Rich, glad to be here with you talking about the career of NBA and ABA legend Rick Barry. Yes, yeah, a guy that we've uh, done a ton of research on, a bunch of background info, watch a lot of tape of him. I'm excited to talk about him. It's a very interesting character, one that you it sort of gets overlooked in a lot of ways for how important he was to the history of uh, basketball. And that's sort of why we're going to talk about him here today. Yeah. So, I'm excited. And, and some of that is definitely probably because he played a good portion of his career in the ABA, which is kind of you know, at least at first for him was a lesser league than the ABA. You know, it later grew in strength and in stars and talent by the end of its um, run. You definitely was at least close to, if not, you know, equal with the um, NBA, certainly in, in its top stars. Um, and uh, and some of that is that, quite frankly, Rick Barry had a prickly personality. <laughs> kind of a kind of a dick. Yeah, so you could. That sort of doesn't um, help you. you the, say, uh... I, I I read his <laughs> um his book Confessions of a Basketball Gypsy, which was written um dur- was like three years into his you know, career, more like, well, like six right? years into his career. Oh, yeah, okay. It was yeah. written. He was um in between seasons with the Nets. His last two ABA seasons. He spent four years in the ABA and had done two years um with the Warriors. I guess actually after his fifth season. Um, and it's actually an interesting book. Talks a lot about his um, upbringing and his, you know his legal cases and and things that are going on. But I, I would have to describe him, especially as a youth, as a bit of a rapscallion. And he was just obsessively competitive, <laughs> a stubborn, willful. Yeah, he was. You know, he once punched a nun. So that um, kind of goes. To- he said that in his book. Has anybody ever corroborated that? I believe that? it. Well, his parents. 
Okay. All right. Well, then they yeah they yeah, would know then. So, so okay. So, so they 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 talk about it. it, it one yeah one nice <laughs> thing about the book I, it, I don't want to get too deep into it, but it actually yeah. includes like um, portions where the people that he's talking about in the book have a, a chance to like respond to what he says. Um, not his parents, also his wife, but also like some coaches and people he didn't particularly like and people that were uh, opposed to him in the legal cases. So it, it's interesting from that perspective. It is actually a, uh, a an interesting book to read if you are uh, definitely very interested in Rick. Barry, since he never did a later, you know, autobiography mm-hmm. that covered, you know, all of his career. And then obviously Terry Pluto's Loose Balls is another great, great reference. That's one that I look back at a lot of this because obviously as we're, we're going to get into with his ABA stuff, that that's the the book. I mean, if you're a basketball fan and haven't read that book, you, I mean, listen to the rest of this podcast, but then when you're done with that, go re- read I, that book because it's just, it, it's an incredible. Yeah, I would, I would agree. And I, I think it's interesting that he, Rick Barry really um, follows the, um, you know, he he fits right in that that part of the of NBA and ABA history, that's right near the end of the Russell Celtics dominating era, and then his last year is the first Bird Magic year. So mm-hmm. it's, it's like right that like in between era that's sort of hard to define. Um, you know, there aren't the dominant teams. Maybe the stars of that era just don't shine as brightly as, you know, as we think of with Bird and Magic and with uh, Weston Russell and Chamberlain, you know, for whatever reason, or just you, there were just so many changes in the NBA that we're, I, you know, I know we're going to talk about so many more teams. It's just maybe harder to dig into a little bit. I, I, I'm not sure, but I, I think he's just a, a guy who really almost encapsulates encapsulates everything about that in-between era. Mm, absolutely. So, and in fact, we're going to uh, chat with, uh, we have a great guest today, uh, Curtis Harris of uh, ProHoopsHistory.com. So we'll be back in a moment to chat with him. All right, we're back and we are on the line. We have Curtis Harris of the wonderful ProHoopsHistory.com uh, with us. Curtis, uh, thanks for joining the program. Yeah, no problem. And uh, we're talking a little bit about the uh, some of the important things about uh, Rick Barry's career. And uh, one thing we definitely want to talk about is how important was Barry's jump to the ABA, uh, both in establishing that league and in players eventually uh, gaining, uh, getting higher salaries and uh, gaining free agency. Uh, well, it was obviously um, it was more important for the latter part, uh, latter part of that. Uh, where it kind of created really the first instance of free agency uh, in in the NBA and professional basketball at that point, because uh, before that, you know, players were pretty much bound to the team they were in in the NBA unless they got traded or they got cut by the team, but they couldn't really sign uh, with another club. So that was the the good part of the ABA for the players is that it provided an outlet for them to try to have some uh, some leverage with the owners in the NBA, but the the problem was that the, the court system uh, generally sided with the NBA at first. So Rick Barry had to sit out a whole season before he was able to, to play for the ABA. And, um, yeah, the, he had that problem. A few other players had that issue go on, and that wasn't resolved really until the mid-1970s. 
Uh, one interesting thing about Barry, and we sort of talked about it, or we will talk about it here uh, shortly, is mm-hmm. the in-between era that he played in. It, it, it's very, you have your Bill Russell and your Celtics and your Wilts, and then you sort of have this murky, sort of dark area, and then you have your Bird Magic, and it's like this this beacon of light to the NBA. Why do you think that era sort of has this weird connotation where people either forget about it, it's not talked about that much, is it, you know, is it the dominant lack of dominant teams, is there not, you know, the stars there were before? Why, why is that area so murky, or that that era so murky rather i mean i think it's part of what we just talked about is the fact that uh you had two professional leagues uh for most of it you know from 68 through 76 you know you had the nba and the aba so you had like the the best players in professional basketball were split between two leagues so you, mm-hmm. so you at some point you can kind of question you know uh or just think about it whether like if all those players had been in the nba then you probably would have had a a more dominant team, sustained dominance over the, the first and middle part of the 70s. Uh, but, you know, it's that's part of the reason that the basketball was fragmented at that point. And uh, then by the late 70s, of course, you had the, the problem with cocaine coming out, and a lot of good players uh, got wrapped up in that and kind of just floated around in the days. Even though they were still playing kind of well, you could tell that they weren't playing up to their full potential. Uh, guys like, obviously, David Thompson is the one that comes to mind first off, the guy that really really waste a lot of potential, even though he was still a pretty good player, still didn't reach his full max. Uh, what do you, uh, when you you know think about Rick Barry and his career, what are some of the more interesting uh, teams or uh, teammates that he played with that stand out to you? I would definitely say the, the team and teammates, uh, you might get it all in one. That would be like the, the 1969 Oakland Oaks, where he actually had a pretty good cast of characters. It was uh, obviously Rick Barry, and then um, Doug Moe and Larry Brown were both on that team. And, of course, they were both going to be really good coaches in the ABA and the NBA. Uh, and then also Warren Jabali uh, was a, a rookie that season. And uh, Jabali had the reputation of being the toughest guy in the ABA and no one, uh, someone you didn't want to mess with on the court. He beat up anybody that crossed his path. Uh, but, unfortunately, like Rick Barry actually only played half of that season, though, because he was playing a game against the Nets. And he got an undercut driving to the basket on one play, and that blew out his knee when he fell to the ground. So he missed half the year, even though the Oaks went on to win the championship. He wasn't a, actually a part of it because he was sitting on the bench when they finally won the title. So that's uh, what, one of the. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yes, I was just going to say, like, so that's pretty, probably the most interesting team he played for, but nobody really knows because. Uh, it was in the ABA, and it's the Oakland Oaks. Nobody know, really knows about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the interesting things with Barry, and, and especially with Warren, as you mentioned, and just Barry in general with anybody who he crossed, is that he wasn't the most diplomatic guy. He was a guy that, that clashed with, with literally anybody, you know, coaches, management, players, media. I mean, any, anything and everybody that Barry could argue with, he, he would find a way. Um, how do you think that sort of affects how we perceive Barry these days and how we sort of – in NBA circles received and, and, and talked about and sort of his, his legacy. It does, does that yeah. affect his legacy in your mind? Well, yeah, obviously like that affects anybody, like um, any walk of life, uh, your attitude, how you carry yourself, um, you know, your reputation, how, how other people think of you. So uh, Rick Barry was definitely a prickly personality, uh, spoke his mind freely, uh, didn't try to sugarcoat stuff. And he said things to people. So like, um, you know, he, he won a title uh, with the Golden State Warriors in 75. But if he had won, say, you know, three, four championships, then his his personality might be more forgiven because, you know, he was just a great winner, kind of like Michael Jordan. So you can just overlook kind of the, the personality flaws maybe. <laughs> but if you have only only one title, like only, uh, one championship, then people will kind of hold 
the, the negative stuff against you uh, more easily than he would otherwise. So I definitely think that plays into our perception of him. And, um, and again, the stuff we talked about earlier, again, having two different leagues at that point and his career being split between the two leagues. So it's kind of hard to remember that he was pretty good for quite a while, but it was split between two leagues and um, had a lot of troubles, uh, legal troubles, uh, trying to get on the court during that time. And, uh, you know, one thing that, of course, um, the NBA changed a lot um, from the when, when Barry originally played um, – it's uh you they were just a few years in the nba away from having you know kind of unofficial um quotas for how many black players each team would have and the league as as it evolved particularly in the 70s became um you know increasingly african-american and um it's just kind of interesting to think about what whatever like it's because certainly he benefited from that and and even talks about that in his book is where you know he got you know endorsements that Nate Thurman wouldn't have gotten even though he felt Nate Thurman deserved them more and was a better player um and at the same time um he talks about and on certain teams there were there was racial tension particularly in Washington um the year he played for the Caps where you know there Mm -hmm. was there were divisions between the uh white and black players you know it, it's, it's a tough question, but what do you think of, like, um, just about, like, the league evolving during that time to be more African-American and those tensions? I mean, were those just kind of inevitable part of society? Do you think that, you know, some of it was unique to basketball, but just because of it's one of the – it's one job in which there are so many more African-Americans than white people? I mean, yeah, that's – I mean, and you're right. That is a pretty big question. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't mean to <laughs> totally put you on the spot, but it's. I, I think it is an interesting. Thing. Talk all about racial tension. Talk about yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. yeah, let's get to it. Um, yeah, and you wrote a post about Warren Jabari that I think is interesting. Maybe after uh, we can talk a little more about. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess we'll start like larger American society first. Like you know, Rick Barry's rookie season was uh, I think 1965. Um, so mm-hmm. that's you know that's smack dab in the middle actually towards the tail end of the civil rights movement. That's when you got like the voting rights act and the civil rights act. So, uh, you know, American society in general was changing. You have, uh, blacks increasingly getting, uh, better positions in American society. Uh, but the NBA was actually, you know, a little bit ahead of society, um, in terms of the proportion of blacks that were represented in the league. And, uh, the actually the NBA, of course, at the first, you know, head coach, I was black in the major league with Bill Russell and, uh, I know their deputy commissioner by the mid-70s was also African-American. So at a time when football or baseball and obviously hockey uh, were like struggling to get blacks on the field or in any kind of management level, by 1975, the NBA had a deputy uh, deputy commissioner that was African-American. So uh, in some ways, they've always been ahead of the curve. Uh, but in some ways, like he also spoke of Rick Barry and the endorsements, they, they still kind of still had the problem of the racism where like uh, – all things being equal, a black between a black and a white player, the team would want to take a white player because that was they felt that would cater to the fans better. Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, that that went on into the late '70s before that really finally, you know, bit the dust. They were always selecting the the slightly less or you know the slightly worse or just as good white player over the black player um, at, at those kind of moments. Um, but for Rick Barry. Um, you know, again, him being kind of outspoken on lots of issues, uh, he was one never to shy away from, uh, any topic. So he spoke his mind freely about race as well. And, 
I know there's that one occasion where he had that gap and he was a broadcaster, but he still like the watermelon grin uh, about a black player. So you can see that uh, he he was very perceptive, but again, Kasana kind of put his foot in his mouth in certain situations. So I could see how his, some of his black teammates would kind of be rubbed the wrong way by him sometimes. With Barry, um, and you wrote a great post uh, at ProHoopsHistory.com. Obviously, you went through and discussed the life and career of Rick Barry. In your mind, maybe quickly, how would you sort of sum up Rick Barry? When the name Rick Barry comes to mind, what's the first thing that you sort of think of? Or what's the most telling thing of his career? Or And you can't say the underhand free throw either. That's that's the other. All right, well, you can't say the underhand free throw because every that's everybody. I mean, that's that's the one we we and we're going to talk about that. It's like synonymous with him. So you can't say that. Other than the underhand free throw, what in your mind comes to, when you think of Rick Barry? I think of an like a, a supremely gifted all around small forward. Like we when we think of a small forward in the NBA, it's like you know the, the prototype. Looking through NBA's history, uh, Rick Barry ought to be the one that comes up probably most often because uh, he was a really good defender, excellent scorer, like the the first 10 years of his career, he averaged 30 points a game. Uh, but again, we don't realize that because it was split between the NBA and the ABA, and he had a few injuries that also kind of sapped um, some of the, the overall numbers. But a uh, great scorer, um, great rebounder, again, for a small forward, a great rebounder, an excellent passer. It's like you look at him, you're like, what does he do wrong? And you say, pretty much nothing except he might get pissed off at a teammate. That'd probably be the worst aspect of his game. So um, I think he really should be looked at as like the prototypical, if you want a small forward, that's the kind of mold you want to put your player in. All right. Well, uh, Curtis, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, for being on our show. We uh, definitely appreciate it. And, and just on a personal note, uh, you know, your website is just such an excellent look at uh, NBA and ABA history and other, you know, pro leagues of the past. You don't you don't limit yourself just to uh, just to those leagues, uh, even even deeper into history. And it's uh, we're very hopeful with this show that we can, you know, somehow add a little bit to a lot of the um, research and conversations that you've uh, started through your website. So so thank you very much. I know. Thank, thank you all for having me on. Now we have Rick Barry, the great, great forward from the Golden State Warriors, guarded by Jamal Wilkes, another great all-star from the Golden State Warriors. Now, Rick, you've just been fouled. Now, what do you do? All right, so we'd like to thank Curtis Harris of ProHoopsHistory.com for chatting with us about Rick Barry. This is very interesting insights. Um, one thing before we get into the, the bio and all that stuff about Rick Barry, um, the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people, and, and, and me especially, when you name Rick, when you mention Rick Barry, everybody thinks of the free throw, and it's the underhand free throw. It's a thing that you know was commonplace in basketball in its early history, and that's how everybody you know shot free throws. And then for a while they got away from it, but Rick Barry did not. Rick Barry was a man in his own island doing these underhand free throws forever. I mean, and, and, and he, he still stands by it. He's the guy that shouts at the, anytime there's like a guy that doesn't have, you know, isn't a good free throw shooter, your Shaquille O'Neal's, your Ben Wallace's, you know, your Andre Drummond's more currently, they've always sort of interviewed Rick Barry and he's like, yeah, I could teach them how to do the underhand. And then they always go, no, I don't want to do it's It's just, that's, he's synonymous with that free throw. And, and one thing we want to do before we kind of get into the, the meat and potatoes of the podcast is sort of talk about our favorite free throw routines. Cause everybody's got, there's guys that are out there that have, you know, the three bounce and I go do it or whatever, but there's so many unique ones out there. 
Um, do you have a particular one that you like? Um, he, you know, he's not really necessarily my favorite player, but I've always really enjoyed the Rip Hamilton uh, routine where he takes two routine dribbles and then like a really weird off to the right dribble and then comes back and takes the shot. <laughs> I won't lie. I've, I've stolen this one. I, I, I steal oh, this nice. one. Oh, nice. All right. Yeah, I do the Rip one for no reason of I, I don't know why. It's just sort of it, it, it's one that you kind of get. But the side dribble is nice. Yeah, I do the two and then the side. It, there it you helps. go. Well, I don't know I why. mean, I'm, I'm sure you have a Rick Barry like percentage in your career. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I probably should do the other. Guy. You know what? It's, it's not a bad idea. I'm talking about all these other guys of Andre Drummond's who don't do it. I should probably, probably start doing yeah. It. I've done. I'm really good at it in horse. I don't know why I don't bring it out to the real games, but you know, because that's another thing too. Everybody does it in horse. It's like the 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 go to like. It's not your first shot. It's not your second shot. But it's like three or four in the in the horse game. It's like someone's got H O and and you're gonna do the 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 granny shot is what they call it too, which I always find funny is that's what's synonymous with it is the granny shot. Yeah. Which, I'm sure Rick Barry really loves <laughs> to hear. Like <laughs> this little guy. Uh, other ones that I like. There's a few. Um, uh, Gilbert Arenas always had a fun one. Uh, the behind the back a, a few times. I always like Nick Van Exel's too. It was just like the most unique to me. Because if you haven't seen it, if you're not familiar with the Nick Van Exel is, he's like to the top of the circle. He's way deeper. Like most people just stand on the line and they get as close to the line as possible. He went back, which is just unique in its own right. Just unbelievably unique, yeah. actually. That's an odd one. And then... Um, yeah, some funny ones also are Jerry Stackhouse. He just had he just bent really, really far down <laughs> before you know, um, then bending back up and taking that shot, which is such a low bend. He's almost touching the floor, you know. Um, and then Jason Kidd, of course, classy Jason Kidd, the um, you know NBA's leader in in class, um, where he um, he kisses his hand and then he touches his backside and then he kisses his hand again and then you know shoots the free throw. I I guess my understanding is that is him telling his wife to kiss his ass. <laughs> I, I that, that's that's my that's my understanding he, of that of that but i uh I, I guess i can't you know confirm that with my deep NBA yeah, i feel like he did that before the wife well maybe deal. he did then maybe i'm well, well maybe oh. maybe the maybe he added that's the what ass i'm thinking part. yeah yeah because i know we always did the kiss but maybe i never saw the the, the uh yeah, i didn't notice it e- either until i watched a few more and then they, they showed it from like the a different angle and you can see him you know you know touching touching his ass so <laughs> so Jason Kidd and that's the, the homage there, there's a few of those too you have the Jeff Hornacek who rubs his like the side of his cheek um, someone else does something yeah. but I know there, there's a bunch of other weird ones yeah. too like guys talking to themselves or Carl Malone or, yeah. yeah you have Dirk Dirk humming yeah. Jeff, Jeff Hornacek is a lot sweeter at least because it's in honor of his kids you know he's not he's right, not he's insulting not anyone you know he's not uh, insulting an ex and uh, and then I like uh, Don Nelson's uh, you know one handed um free throw that that mm. was always unique and of course he had don nelson has that famous um free throw i think it's in the 69 finals to beat the lakers where it just like bounces on the rim forever and then finally falls yeah, in right he uh, i know nelson was an interesting one um i believe the nba 2k i think it was 2k 12 was the first one where they had all the uh a lot of the older guys and really sort of went all all in on, on having a lot of retro players or whatever and i remember him being an interesting one to do i remember the rick barry one was impossible to get a hold of <laughs> at first because it was just it's just so unique and so different but it was I, I thought that was a nice touch that they went back and a lot of these older guys that had the weird sort of free throws they went in there and did that nelson i i remember and obviously rick barry um uh, before we sort of move on to other stuff, um, the underhand free throw, which obviously, as I mentioned, is synonymous with Rick Barry, is synonymous with nobody else in, in today's NBA. There, there is not a modern guy who's even 
thought about attempting it. I know recently Andre Drummond, they sort of talked to him about, hey, is this something you would like to do? He's a guy who's, you know, hovering around 50%. He said, nope, not going to do it. Not, no, no way, no, no way. You know, Shaquille O'Neal famously said, no, I'm not going to, you know, Rick Barry was, <laughs> would go out of his way to say, I will help you. I promise you, I will make you a dominant player. And Shaq said, no, you know, I'd rather shoot 45% or whatever. Um, the only guy that I found recently, and, and this was in an article about the the art of the underhand free throw from SB Nation, which is a really good long form piece just on, on Rick Barry in general as well. Uh, it was George Johnson, who was actually a teammate of him on the 75 championship uh, Warriors team. He was a center who shot 55% using the standard method. Barry said, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to help you. I'll show you how to do it better. And lo and behold, showed him how to do it better. And we, he, he became a, a really good free throw shooter. I mean, he was he stayed in the mid-70s, which I don't know if I'd count really good. Rick Barry sort of mentioned that 80 was what he considered a good and the 90 was elite. But mid-70s isn't bad for a guy who's shooting 55. It's, it's a stark yeah, difference. That's, that's between, a big you know, improvement. That's, that's a lot of points. 75 yeah. is a, bit, a little bit better than league average. So, you know, I think that's I think that's worth, you know, if you're a big man shooting 75% free throws, I think that's, you know, I think it's pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm going to say that I will say that Rick Barry is probably like the worst spokesman for his own cause just because of how, you know, blunt and how undiplomatic he is. <laughs> and so I can understand players resisting a call from Rick Barry to, you know, especially for him to teach you. I'm sure that's not right. Well, I, I mean, I, I can't either. imagine <laughs> like it would be that difficult to like, I mean, what is there to teach exactly? I mean, like just start shooting it underhand and kind of find like a, you know, what sort of works for your team you could watch the, the red on round ball segment with Rick Barry and basically get the lessons that you need it, you know, just relax your legs and then, you know, and hold the ball, you know, at the seams and then sort of, um, flick the wrists. I think was, that was kind of the one thing that I took from yeah. that was like, Oh, okay. The, the, the wrist shot, it, that, that, that was sort of an interesting, um, they showed it in slow motion and the way the ball rotates and, you know, the backspin that you get. And, and that's actually pretty interesting. And like, yeah, it, it's sort of weird, obviously, because it's so different, but like you watch him do it a few times and then you don't even think about it, like, oh, it's weird. Like, you just think about, oh, that's how Rick Barrett's free throws and they go into that's, most of the That's time. why I'm always interested that, that, that other guys haven't, that nobody, not a single shooter it, it has adopted weird. it because yeah. the first time you do it, yeah, everyone's going to go, whoa, and then, you know, it might look sort of weird and maybe, you know, you don't bring it out until you've, you've in practice done it a little bit and, and maybe in the middle of the game you do it, but it's just like, and it's all just an embarrassment level, but I feel like, and that's what people say is, oh, it's embarrassing or I look like, you know, I feel like after you hit two of them, no one's going to care anymore. You know you know what I mean? Where if it's a crunch situation, you hit one. Yeah. I, I don't think it's going to be a story anymore. I mean, yeah, you're going to get some beat reporters and, and some big stories of, whoa, he's bringing back the underhand free throw. But after a while, I feel like it's okay. But you get a guy like Barry who, as I mentioned, is synonymous with it. And the reason he's synonymous with it is because he won't stop telling you about it as well as like every interview, you know, people go to him. He's always got an opinion about, you know, his free throw shooting and underhand free throw shooting and and we're you know saying that he's the best free throw shooter of all time which is not really true anymore but you know yeah. oh he's close i mean he's third 89.3 percent for his career you know we'll, we'll give him that that's pretty good um we did we did, there is one um exception to that that we uh, that we didn't mention is that the birdman actually uh, attempted two uh free throws underhanded uh I, I think it was when he had an injured wrist um so he he actually did at least a couple times, and I guess you know if any NBA character is going to try to do the free throw underhanded, <laughs> I think I would guess Birdman would think. One thing I I I can't believe like that it hasn't at least been tried in practice or in you know like I, I somebody has has to have had at least like 
looked at it and at least at least think about it and try it in practice and maybe it just mm-hmm. isn't practical for everyone because it you know it would be a, a completely different way to do it and that might be you know more difficult than just you know um sort of adjusting what you're you know what you're doing now you know i mean that that, that might be more of a change than um you know most players want to do it may have less to do than we think about the idea of being embarrassed by it right so, but but who knows because no one does it no one really talks about it so one day one, one day, day yeah <laughs> well i I, next, we're going to uh, we're going to look a little bit at the early life and career of Rick Barry. We'll be back in a moment. All right, we're back and we're here to talk about the early life and career of uh, Rick Barry. And uh, he was a, he, he grew up in New Jersey. Uh, his grandfather was known as Dick Dick Barry. Who uh, kind of squ- <laughs> are you, why are you laughing, Rich? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, right. he uh, was kind of a carouser <laughs> who uh, squandered his uh, family money, and uh, I just feel like his name isn't Big Dick because he was a tall guy. But yeah, I mean, he, he probably was, but I feel he like... might have been a beefy guy too. I mean, well, he is Rick yeah. Barry's you know grandfather, so he may have been tall. You know, there's certainly uh, <laughs> that that is certainly a possibility. But um, so. Um, so Rick's parents uh, were um, they kind of salt of the earth types who um, worked. Uh, his dad was a basketball coach and, and and taught Rick the game. And and Rick's older brothers, well, they were all good basketball players. Uh, Rick's older brother probably could have been, maybe could have been a pro, but he suffered an injury uh, before he got to that point. Um, he was definitely, as I mentioned earlier, was a bit of a rapscallion uh, growing up. He um, just was very uh, resistant to. Uh, listening to anybody uh he was obsessively competitive stubborn and willful he had a horrible temper which was not something that really went away as he got older it may have mellowed slightly uh at different points in his career but um and in fact he says let's face it i provoke trouble i shoot my mouth off too much and i'm quick to throw a punch so you know that's that's a pretty uh uh you know strong indictment i guess already um so he just had a um you know, uh, he had basically like a middle class, maybe lower level uh, upbringing, I, uh, you could say. He ended up going to the um, University of Miami uh, to uh, college for um, Bruce Hale was the coach there. And uh, at the time, Miami wasn't necessarily the powerhouse that you would think it would be now. I mean, it's never really been a basketball powerhouse, but certainly wasn't a you know, any kind of, of sports powerhouse, but, um, you know, they had a, a solid program at the time and he certainly was the best player that they, um, had there, probably the best player they've ever had, uh, there. He, uh, was with his, uh, father-in-law, uh, Bruce Hale, who, or well, not his father-in-law at the time, but his future father-in-law, Bruce Hale. Uh, he later, uh, met and, uh, uh, pursued and married his daughter and he was it was a very good experience for him he ended up being uh leading the nca in points and was uh quite a fantastic college player uh then he was drafted um he ended up being the third player overall the second player for the uh warriors so bill bradley was drafted first by the uh by the knicks and then his, his fred hetzel was uh was drafted by the uh, Warriors, and Fred Hetzel ended up not really, you know, having a 
solid pro career, but not, nothing you know particularly special. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the drafts are actually, and this time this is, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this because uh, a little bit yeah. later when we're going to talk about sort of the, the widespread changes of the NBA. And, and this draft was actually the last one that had territorial picks as well. So it's sort of muddy on exactly where Barry was picked. Yeah. Like in the true sort of overall players, he was. He was third, as you mentioned, but in like the first round, he was the second pick in the first round because there was three guys taken territorially and those weren't rounds or whatever. And it's just it's a whole different animal when you have (laughs) imagine. I mean, there's still times where people sort of will insinuate that NBA still kind of has these sort of things where, hey, LeBron, you're going to Cleveland or, you know, Derrick Rose. Oh, he hit the lottery off Chicago. Hey, who would have known? But but this was just blatant. It was like, all right, Bill Bradley, you're from New York, New York Knicks. <laughs> you have Bill Bradley. Right. Like, Gil Goodrich, you're from Los Angeles. You, you like, yeah, exactly. like, it's just it, it's it's shocking to think of a league that that would do. I mean, Will Chamberlain, obviously, famously, you know, was it as well. It's just it's so funny to imagine like a league where it, it would be that blatant. Yeah, just- where where it would be this guy is from your town you get this guy you know what I mean and it's kind of cool in a way it's it's like you couldn't do it today it'd be complete anarchy if you did it today but I think it's still it's still a fun idea that that to prop up you know your region and, and to prop up your you know your team and to, you you get those sort of local stars so that, that it's always interesting but this was unfortunately the last uh, of the territorial rights so where he was drafted is kind of interesting but but you know yeah. if there had been a miami team that definitely you know they probably would have had a uh you know that would have probably, probably been a good guy to have in that franchise yeah, yeah exactly yeah it's always and you always think of that too because there's some guys where you're yeah. like oh why didn't he go to a team and then you forget that they didn't hit there was you know <laughs> there wasn't those teams too, or whatever too bad where... the heat were 25 years too late exactly yeah, yeah. well um soon so i i there was some questions going in about Barry and his durability because he was tall but relatively skinny. Whether he could hold up to the demands of um, of the NBA, but he pr- he proved those doubts um, t- to be silly pretty quickly. Um, he he was rookie of the year. He had uh, a fantastic rookie season. Um, his team uh, barely, uh, well, they, they they missed the playoffs. They they. Um, came within a few games of, of missing the playoffs. So they weren't far off, but they did have a losing record. Um, they had, uh, they had Al Adels was one of the stars on the team. Uh, and of course the big star there was, uh, Nate Thurman was actually only in his second year. Um, they weren't, the Warriors weren't, uh, only a couple seasons removed from, um, trading Wilt Chamberlain to, um, to Philadelphia and uh, they hadn't really done particularly well with Philadelphia. So they thought, well, we might as well just trade him because things aren't going well. I, Guy Rogers, a, a guard was another one of the um, important players in, in that rookie year for him. Um, but uh, yeah, they were 34 and 46. Their coach was uh, Alex Hannum, who had just really is regarded as one of the uh, better coaches in um, pro basketball history, but just, it was a guy who, uh, coached everywhere um, and did end up winning a couple of NBA championships and an ABA uh, title. Um, and in, fa- in fact, the uh, in, in Barry's second year, he is the uh, coach for the uh, 76ers against uh, Rick Barry's team in the uh, 76 final, or in the, excuse me, in the 67 finals. A lot, mm-hmm. a lot of sixes and sevens there. 
Uh, one one game that I um, from his rookie year that that's super interesting is a fifty seven point performance in uh, Madison Square Garden, but unfortunately it was a yeah. loss to New York. And and one thing that I found pretty funny and, and you could tell is it's classic Rick Barry. He was twenty one of twenty two from the free throw line. So yeah, they finished they, they finished seventh in a nine uh, team league. I like that six of the nine teams made the playoffs <laughs> in, say, in the league. I, I, I read that when, when we were looking that up, I sort of laughed because. You know, you get so many people these days that are like, ah, the NBA is stupid. Everybody makes the playoffs. Right. And it's like, it was better in the old days. Yeah. And like in the old days, <laughs> literally 75% of the teams made right. the playoffs. So that that's, uh, yeah, that's exactly. very funny. Where ah, everybody gets to go to the playoffs now. Well, no, actually, a lot so, less than uh, ever. But. So, so Barry was touted for his ability to um, get to the hoop. Like he wasn't necessarily as good of a shooter as you might expect, which you would kind of think based on his free throw percentage. Of course, he wasn't shooting everything else underhanded. So um, so he wasn't necessarily a, a, a great shooter, particularly, especially at first. I think that's something he worked on later. But he was just really able to, um, to get to the basket, to get around his opponent, to um, also moved really well without the ball um and of course was able to draw so many free draw a lot of contact and makes and uh, get so many free throws and make so many free throws that that um was something that obviously uh, made him a great player right away yeah certainly yeah it's, it, you you do sort of feel like he should be a better shooter just based off you know as you mentioned the free throw shooter yeah. you, you sort of attribute good shooters to good free throw shooters but he wasn't quite that and as i think yeah as you mentioned yeah. not, you know if he, you look, he found a if trick look, to shoot the free throws there was no trick to shoot a you know jumper off the yeah. dribble so that if you look later at his um you know three point percentage you know it's it, it it was never particularly strong you know it was just like yeah i mean he he was a good enough outside shooter later that he could pay for defenses that um, that sagged on him, but um, but he uh, definitely was. Um, but yeah, that was not his strength. So um, his second, but a good yeah, score, so it didn't exactly. matter. <laughs> Man knew how to yeah. score. So, so his um, his second season, he um, he led the league in scoring. He was on the All uh, NBA team again. Um, however, he there was a new coach, Bill Sharman, another one of the great coaches in um, history. He's going to lead the Lakers and uh, to greatness in the uh, '70s. But uh, for whatever reason, um, Rick Barry did not care for Bill Sharman, and and Rick Barry was a uh, a guy who definitely had problems with his coaches. He didn't care for his high school coach. He had issues with some of his ABA coaches. He says nice things about Charman as a person, but says he's miserable to play for. There were just too fanatical about basketball, too much practice that wore out the team. And Barry wasn't really that huge on practice either. Barry kind of in his attitude reminds me a lot of Allen Iverson. Mm -hmm. And just of sort of like because he was so talented and because he was so skilled, um, you know, one, he didn't feel like necessarily all the rules applied to him. And also that um, and he worked so hard during games that why should practice be something that he had to focus on right, as much. Yeah. So, um, and especially hated the morning shoot arounds that became Charmin's trademark and eventually, you know, for something <laughs> that became like, you know, uh, in the big in the NBA. So, um, and, uh, so they played in the uh, 76 they, they made it through to the playoffs in 76. They made it to the finals, even though, uh, they were didn't necessarily. They were actually third in the league in their record. They were uh, 
they had uh, 44 and 37, which was you know, number one in the West. But the uh, 76ers were 68 and 13, which was the best record at, at, of all time at the time. And the Celtics were 60 and 21. So they definitely were quite a bit below those two teams. But those two teams had to face each other in the playoffs. Finally, uh, Will Chamberlain got past Russell in a playoff series. And uh, the, uh, the Sixers and Warriors played uh, a pretty hard-fought uh, six-game series considering the, um, you know, the, the, the difference in records between the teams. Uh, Barry played uh, well during that series, averaged uh, 40.8 points um, <laughs> per game yeah, during that series. So, you know, he, he played pretty well. Um, one thing I'll say about Barry is that he was always willing to um, – he always thought that Thurman was the most valuable player on his team. And he was really always willing to talk up how great Thurman was, mm-hmm. um, which you didn't necessarily have to do because all the attention was, was based on him. But, um, you know, he, he was a guy who at least, you know, um, like he was certainly a guy who was critical about like, everyone and everything, but he was also willing to kind of um, be critical about himself a lot and also was willing to um, at least uh, not let his ego get in the way of things completely. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah. If he, if he had, he had a few guys that he really, really trusted and really enjoyed and really liked and, and was really hard and, and really on top of, of, of praising them and, and letting everybody else know how good they were and sort of deflecting some of the attention from him to them. But few of those, I mean, otherwise <laughs> most other people, not really, but he had a yeah, few, so he had a, a small circle. Uh, what, one thing interesting about this year before we move on to uh, the next year and then when it gets real interesting for him, I thought, um, you mentioned he led the league in scoring. I looked this up. He had six 50-point games and 22 40-point games that year. So uh, yeah. not bad. And, and <laughs> not he, a bad day at the yeah, office. He was also MVP of the All-Star game that year. And he one thing that he said in his book is that uh, he was great, He was really glad they led the league in scoring, of course. But he did say that that was basically something Wilt could have done at any time that he wanted to. But that Wilt, that was the year that Wilt wanted to lead the league in assists. So he kind of changed his mm-hmm. game to uh, do that. And, and he was mostly critical of Wilt. He even used the term loser to describe him and said that everybody knows that he, you know, falters in big moments and a lot of the things that you get when people talk about Wilt. Um, yeah. But he did at least was uh, willing to say that. So, so yes, uh, the next season, he actually does not end up playing. He uh, negotiates with uh, the fledgling Oakland Oaks of the fledgling ABA uh, who are owned by Pat Boone. Yes. The singer Pat Boone. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Oh, ABA. I yes. love you. <laughs> and, uh, he's one of the co-owners. Um, and they end up, uh, signing his father-in-law, um, as general manager of the team. That's sort of one thing to woo him. Although they, 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 at least Bruce Hale tried to sort of keep it. Like you make your decision based on what you think is best, not this kind of thing. Um, and then they ended up using a lot, you know, of like 15% ownership of the team and things like that to try to get him to uh, sign. Um, eventually, he agrees to sign. He feels like the um, the offer that the Golden State owner wanted to get, go for him, it wasn't quite as much. Eventually, he does give him close to the same salary, but it's right at the end. He's like, you know, I've made this commitment. Sorry. You know, so he ends up going to the league. There's a lawsuit and um, and then he uh, there, there's a lawsuit that he ends up losing. And uh, basically, it me- the reserve clause is enforced. That means that, mm-hmm. you know, he, he is he had a two-year contract with the team and then the reserve clause means that he either has to play for the team or, or play for nobody and he, he chooses to play for no one 
Although he, apparently he came very close to signing to actually playing with the Warriors that year for a while. He, he, he had had some talks with the ownership and they almost got him to play. And then he decided that he just didn't want to. And this was definitely something that gave him a reputation as selfish and money hungry. I mean, this is the really the beginning of players taking a much stronger um ownership of themselves this and of course the more famous lawsuit in baseball by Kurt Flood is going to lead to you know players eventually having the right to free agency and salaries escalating a whole lot and is going to definitely change the relationship between fans and players now that players are just going to be making so much money and athletes athletes are going to be so specialized that it takes them you know kind of away from like you know you know the, the the average fan. Yeah, the, the the you always hear that thing of you know you go to the train station and there was the athlete because he was just one of the guys or whatever he was just really good at you know export or whatever and yeah th- this was the beginning of of them sort of becoming uh, otherworldly celebrities exactly. and and not with the people. Yeah, so, yeah. and uh, Barry thought you know he realized like a lot of the things that the, the a lot of the ABA's promises didn't come true. He thought that other NBA pro- players would jump to the ABA with him he says he was naive felt he didn't do research um didn't have a lawyer with him during a lot of it so um but on the other end he was happy that he felt that he opened the door for other players to get more money he, he does argue in in the book um his he did argue in his book that um he had a lot of uh, you know that he absolutely felt that it was right for players to be able to j- jump to other teams just like owners are able to you know move teams to other cities and he felt you know he absolutely it's a it's a very passionate and quite eloquent actually argument in favor of of that so um you know, he he didn't feel bad about he felt that he had the right to make the decision but what ended up happening to him in the ABA was definitely a disappointment and if he you know he a lot there were a lot of regrets about leaving the warriors particularly the fact that they were a young and up and coming team who could have definitely mm-hmm. had a lot of success yeah absolutely and and we we're not doing this justice um the, the as i mentioned terry pluto's great book uh, loose balls does a really good um you know just great discussion about this particular topic and and Barry going over and and just sort of what the ABA's main goal was and and one of the big things was you know Barry felt slighted but but the ABA, that, he, that's exactly what they wanted, was a guy like Rick Barry of, of, hey, we took one of your top guys, a nice young star, whatever. This was really what the ABA wanted. And really, the ABA's goal was to, at some point, get a merger with the NBA so these like ragamuffin uh, owners could actually get buy NBA teams because they weren't allowed to before. So it's very interesting. I mean, the ABA is just the most fascinating thing oh. in the world. Like, I, I could read and, and talk about the ABA all day. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... And, you know, even, in, I mean... The NBA is about to allow a lot more owners into its club and a lot of them, you know, I mean, the owners that they have at the time are problematic, much less adding, you know, uh, uh, they're going to be adding 15 in the next uh, uh, 15 or so years. You know, just imagine that of that that level of expansion. So, you know, it, it is looking at both leagues, but particularly in the ABA of just like how much of a disorganized mess a lot of it was, was just, <laughs> is, is pretty amazing in modern um, retrospect. And you're right. Loose balls absolutely captures that just so well. Um, and um, so he's, he's able to play in the 68, 69 season with the Oakland Oaks. Um, they're a, a very successful team. They win the ABA championship. They finish 60 in, in 18. Um, Alex Hannum actually is their coach the year before. Um, 
Bruce Hale didn't go very well. They didn't have much talent, and they decide to. Um, uh, he's like, oh, let's bring in Alex Hannum to uh, take over as coach. Well, Alex Hannum also kind of uh, negotiates to take over as GM as well. So Bruce Hale is sort of marginalized. Um, that kind of leads to some tension, uh, particularly with uh, Barry and Hannum, especially after. Um, uh, Rick Barry gets hurt about 35 games into the season. Um, and I, I, he gets her action December and then tries to come back for a little bit, but suffers a, a, uh, ligament injury in his, uh, in his knee. Um, and he, um, and so anyway, he just, uh, there's some feuding over Hannum feeling like he wasn't promoting the team enough. Uh, and, uh, and that kind of led a coach he really liked and got along with led to some division between them. Um, he was able to uh, dress for the uh, ABA championship game uh, and wear his uniform for that, uh, the game in which they won the ABA championship. But uh, he said he did it just because he wanted to protect his suede suit because they were, they would the tradition of throwing the guys into the showers. So I found that amusing. Uh, <laughs> Rick Berry was quite a fashion plate. Actually, uh, there's a, uh, there's a funny, um, it's a, uh, a funny, like, kind of blog, San Francisco blog post on the fashion of Rick Barry that shows, like, a lot of, like, his different um, fashions that he had um, over the uh, different years of his career. And apparently he used to... All the way till today. Yeah, yeah still. He, he was, and he was really into um, dressing in fancy clothes, even, like, to buy fancy clothes for his wife. So, so that's something that uh, I definitely like. So, or find amusing. So... Um, so, so they win the championship, but there's definitely, uh, they're not happy be, or Rick isn't happy when the team decides to, that they're, they're not, the owners are decided they're not doing well. Pat Boone's out and they decide to, uh, sell, uh, to owners that want to take them to Washington to become the Washington caps. And, uh, Barry didn't like the move. He, um, decided he, he he wanted to try to uh, join the uh, Warriors but uh, that didn't actually that unfortunately for him didn't end up happening um, he uh, he eventually was forced to uh, move the team he uh, they they did end up playing at least a little bit uh, you know they they were an okay team um, they uh, they finished 44 and 40. Uh, they lost the Western Division semifinals against the Denver Rockets, uh, who are not related to either. Well, I guess they're related to the Denver Nuggets, aren't they? They're not related to the Houston Rockets, though. I think so. Yeah, the, the ABA lineage, too. And that, that's one of my favorite parts of uh, <laughs> Loose Balls. Is there's a thing in the middle that sort of shows you all the teams to try to follow, like, what yes. the hell, what team went where, what they got named. Because, like... Midway through the season, they moved all the way across the country, got a new name. You know, one game they were this name, the next game they were that name. No, but I believe I'm, I'm almost positive they are the, the current Denver Nuggets. Yeah. So, so um, he, he had another operation after playing a few games with the Caps. He ended up removing all of his carnage in his left knee. Uh, and the fact that he lasted another 10 seasons with no carnage in his, la- in his left knee is pretty impressive. We'll give him that. That's yeah. That's uh, that's not yeah. bad. Um, a lot of guys can, and and we see modern operations now where they, they use you know similar stuff to that, and guys will get you know a few years, but it's just constant pain. But yeah, he. Um, I mean, that, that's yeah. 
when it, without knowing that you wouldn't know I, I really don't think you would have known that or, or watching his game yeah. but I mean his game did evolve a little bit at this point but still it, it's still remarkable right yeah he and he says that during the time that he was just kind of really upset with the situation he had to force himself to kind of go all out for the first time where before that had been instinctual and he also said that he became or it sort of described as he was more became a little more of a perimeter player um and rather than a slasher after the injury, distributing more. And I think that there also was part because he had to change his game because he had to be more of a do-it-all player in the ABA because the ABA just wasn't quite as strong of a, uh, a strong of a league. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I think we're going to take a break here and talk a little bit about, uh, about the Rick Berry family. So we'll be uh, right back to talk about that. Thank you, Charlie. We've got a good one here. Seattle leading by one. They had to come back to do it. They had trailed by as many as 11 points, but came back to lead by one right at the half. And by the way, before we analyze that, I don't know if we can get a shot or not, but I am surrounded by berries here. As you know, Rick played at Golden State. His youngsters, or a couple of his youngsters are with him tonight. A couple of good-looking ones, too. That's uh, Drew, uh, Brent on the left of your screen and Drew on the right. Boys, nice to have you with us. And you know they're good analysts. Yeah, they're really tough. Brent on the left, they only won 75-36 this afternoon. The Warriors should do as well. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a good little league father? I mean, I'll you lay break. off the kid. I do. I know you do. You would. A player always knows to do that. All right. So we're continuing our discussion here about Rick Barry. Um, talk now about his children, who it's a it's a prolific family. Uh, four sons with his first wife, Pam. It's Scooter, John, Brent, and Drew. So you probably know two of those. You might not know the others. Um, he also has another son with his third wife, I believe, uh, Canyon. Third wife, I guess. I'm lo- I lose yeah. track of, of Rick Barry. The, 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 fir- the, the first yeah, two were wife. Pam, which is confusing. So Yes. <laughs> Damn you. Oh, they're both Pam? Oh, that's okay. That's why yeah, I didn't the, the know. Thir- the third Pam. one, I forget. That's weird. You can't do yeah. that. You can't the third one, that, right? I forget her name, but, but the, uh, I, yeah. Yeah, the, the number two is Pam. So. Oh, you can't have both me and Pam. And then he has another daughter who was adopted. Um, I believe that was with Pam as well. Yeah. But uh, go over his uh, his sons here real quick. You have Scooter, who played for the Jayhawks, uh, Kansas Jayhawks. Uh, they won an NCAA title. Uh, then he went on to play 17 years professionally in the U.S. and overseas. Uh, Germany, Spain, Italy, France, Belgium, Australia, all over the place. Uh, he won a CBA title in 1995, a uh, Belgian League title in 2004. So he played all the way up until 2004. And then he reached the uh, NBL finals in 90. Five, and that's the Australian League, I believe, the NBL. Um, John Barry, who uh, you're probably familiar with uh, from various TV outlets right now, uh, he was a uh, played over 14 NBA seasons. Not bad. He was uh, averaged 12.2 points per 36 minutes. Uh, he had a career high 7.5 win shares in 2001 and 2002 with Detroit. Uh, very interesting thing about John Barry is though he seemed to leave every team just as they were about to get their peak. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, that 2001-2002 Detroit team, he left then. Um, the year before they won their title, eventually the, the 2003-2004 season. Um, and then he was also with Sacramento on uh, 2000 to 2001 and then left. And then they actually had, you know, obviously their peak there for the next three years or so, you know, battling the Lakers. He was off that team. So that's kind of the career of John Barry. Brent Barry, who I believe I can go out on a limb and say is probably the most successful of the Barry boys. Would you agree? Uh, I, would, I would say probably yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he averaged uh, 12.9 points per 36. Not a ton of difference from John, but still, uh, still pretty good. Uh, 14 years as well in the NBA. Uh, 2000, uh, actually, 2001, 2002, he had his highest win shares, 12.1. So that was a Barry taking over season. You have both your both your Barry's having career high uh, win shares there. So uh, Brett, the reason I said he was probably the most successful is he won two championships as a member of the Spurs, which you probably remember. Um, when he won, he was the second uh, father and son duo to win NBA championships, following the I cannot pronounce that their last name at all. 
the Gugases, is that it? Okay, I've never known how to exactly pronounce yeah. it. I don't think anyone's ever talked about it, but they uh, he, they, they were the first uh, father-son duo to win championships. And this was repeated by the Waltons, of course, because you, you, of course, remember Luke Walton's contributions to many numerous NBA championship teams. So, uh, um, And as well, if you, if you add in the CBA and the Belgian League and a bunch of other leagues, you'll have uh, you know a father-son-son uh, combo there. Uh, Drew Barry is the all-time assist leader at Georgia Tech. He played briefly for the Fort Wayne Fury in the CBA and then briefly in the NBA with the Atlanta Hawks, the Super Sox, and the Golden State Warriors uh, and played in Poland as well, but uh, only had about 134 points in the NBA, so not a big... Um, not a big mark as well. So yeah, Brent and John, who are obviously the the two kind of patriarchs there. Uh, the third uh, or the uh, the fifth son rather, uh, Canyon, uh, currently plays for the College of Charleston Cougars. And interestingly enough, and hopefully, I don't know if he's going to make his DMBA. We'll, I'll be rooting for him. But this man shoots free throws underhand. He takes over from the lineage of his father. And I, I watched a few interviews there, and he just basically was like, "Hey, my dad wanted to teach me, so I I was willing to learn." So. He shoots free throws underhand, shoots it pretty well, and is a good free throw shooter. So I, I don't believe he has NBA aspirations, but still, if, if he does make it, there's our, there's our guy that we talked about. Um, but famously, before we sort of get into the middle of his career and we, we sort of talked about his children, uh, they're sort of <laughs> – Rick Barry was not a very good father. And famously, I don't know if it's famous or not, he just one day, his NBA career was ending. He just didn't come home one day. That's the story that Brent and John sort of talk about. Uh, they've since reconciled with him a little bit, but but essentially, as I believe um, I believe Scooter put it, that that he just knew that when his career was going to end, he would have to come home and take care of kids and do that sort of stuff. And and Rick didn't want to do that, so he just basically left and never came back. And and they've since, you know, as I mentioned, they, they get along. They're on decent terms now, but obviously, you still lose a lot of of. Will there and 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 there is a, another quote that I read as well that uh, that they always ask you know Brett and John hey why did you never do underhands free throw or you know free throws underhand and they said well we wouldn't want to do it because that would be you know an homage to our father and we we, we want to not do that so it not a good father at all a lot of stuff too before he actually left that he was just. He, it was all revolved around him. Uh, everything was big about him. You know, Rick was the centerpiece of everything. Just, just kind of a, and, and you sort of knew that from the other stuff with Rick that he was a selfish sort of guy. He was very focused on what he was going to do, and and apparently just not a very good father overall. But either way, he he has kids that are are famous, so he's got a little bit of a, a lineage there. And we'll see how Canyon Barry does. But uh, yeah, pretty interesting there uh, for the lineage there. Do you want to get into the middle of his career now? Anything else you want to add about his children? Well, you did forget to mention uh, John's contributions to the 2004 2000. And five Hawks, who were the the thirteen win Hawks, who were my uh, oh, they right. were the fir- first NBA team that I followed closely uh, when I got really back into the NBA. So, but he, he was trading in the middle of the year anyway for Tyron Lue, who I liked a lot better. So <laughs> that was I remember that team a lot. That's a uh, uh, that's the is that the Antoine Walker year? Too? Uh, yes, that would be the Antoine Walker year. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, Ugh. <laughs> it's okay. Well, we got a draft pick for him, so. Right. Actually, that, right, right. that, that ended up being bad. Rondo, which we traded. So, so that actually didn't end up working out well for the Hawks. <laughs> but oh well. But you know, yeah, small exactly. victories. So, all right. So we'll take a break, uh, quick break here, and then we'll get into the middle of uh, Rick Barry's career. All right. So now we're talking about the uh, middle of uh, of Rick Barry's career. He uh, things do not work out so well for the Washington Caps. They decide they want to uh, move to Virginia and become the Virginia Squires and play in four different cities in uh, Virginia. Uh, Barry, uh, not so excited about this. Uh, If Washington, D.C. did not appeal to him, then rural towns in, in Virginia, not so much so or relatively rural towns. 
Uh, I don't want to insult any Virginians here. Although uh, Rick Berry did not have any problem insulting Virginians because he uh, talks, uh, there's a uh, SI article in which he um, says he did, did not want his kids growing up with a Southern accent uh, and basically just says <laughs> terrible things about Virginia. In his book, he says that this is basically intentional to create pressure to get him to be um, traded, which is... Um, definitely a rick berry uh thing to do so uh i guess it was effective so um it's just uh it, it it's very funny that that was the kind of like thing that like would lead to you know a lead to a trade but i guess you know i guess it makes sense but uh i i love how there's this also this quote there's a quote from um <clears throat> there's a rick basically like they focus on like his San Francisco lifestyle and they talk about like how he has like a $18,000 Ferrari and a spectacular house on, on a hill overlooking a valley east of Oakland. Um, let's see. Uh, it, basically, like it, it's just painting him as like just this like huge rich elitist who has like no interest yeah. in, in like living in like Virginia or among commoners or anything anymore um, he does say there that he does want to stay in the NBA and wouldn't return to the NBA for a million dollars a year which um, so if he does get uh, traded to the Nets for a draft pick and uh, $20,000 um, he again misses time with, for a knee injury he um played only 59 games uh the nets finished uh 40 and 44 um but they did make the playoffs they lost in a playoff series perhaps uh funnily enough to the squires uh four games to two uh <laughs> he did get along with a co- i would love to see the the, the newspaper articles in oh, virginia yeah. at that time we couldn't find any but yeah that yeah. would be uh sure they had some yeah, choice they, words there's a few Barry quotes there, there, there's a few quotes at the end of his book that have some newspaper accounts and i think there's a couple things from virginia papers uh mentioned in there um he he did like his coach uh, uh lou carnesaca uh who was for fame, most famously as the uh, saint john's coach um but he was uh, this was his first foray into pro hoops. I said he was disciplined, but he was easy to talk to. Um, and he he liked Rick liked the fact that the ABA talent had improved. He called the Nets a good um, organization. And it's also around this time in which there's an AP story comes out where his wife calls him my husband, the hypochondriac, because th- there's, you know, one re- thing about Rick is that he uh, in addition to many reputations, he also had a reputation for going after the refs all the time, yelling and screaming and so forth. And he said he did that because if he, when he stayed quiet for a while, they wouldn't give him the call. So he did that just because it gave him the calls. And they also, he, he, he says something that I think is sort of Im- implies that he is willing to flop or willing to, um, overact his injuries but his wife more charitably labels him i guess as him thinking that he's always more hurt than he ends up being so i i found that funny given the modern debate over flopping and things like that that this was something of course that was you know going on even then yeah or are they people oh this these new nba players all they do is complain to the refs you know after every call or whatever and then you watch you know you and one thing, we're watching videos of Rick Barry, and you see the other teams. I mean, everybody's just doing it constantly. I know uh, the famous one is we'll talk about it a little bit when he um, when the Warriors win the championship. You see the the, the 
the other team just complaining and you see it just just watching this game it's just like every play it's just complaining to the refs and arguing at him and you got announcers saying that refs are the worst or whatever but so when people sort of say oh jeff van gundy stop complaining about the refs or lebron just go and play it's it's yeah. that's been the oh, NBA yeah, forever absolutely. so and it's part of like i mean it, yeah it does get annoying to watch sometimes but you know yes it has been part of the uh nba forever so um uh, things go a bit better in his second season in uh, with the Nets. He's finally healthy. Uh, he plays 80 games. The Nets finish 44 and 40. Uh, but, uh, so the record isn't necessarily all that much better. But uh, they do end up beating a 68-win uh, Kentucky Colonels uh, four games to two in the playoffs. And then they beat the Squires four games to three. The Squires, that's their first year with uh, Julius Irving. Um, so that's a, that, that's an exciting, uh, uh, time for them. Deep playoff run. They end up losing to the Pacers in the ABA finals, but they, uh, you know, they certainly go farther than a team that, you know, with their record would be expected to go. That's, uh, that's a Larry Brown coach Pacers, right? Uh, was he? Cause I know he coached. That's oh Slick no, 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 Leonard, yeah, that, no, no. Yeah. Leonard, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, I think Slick Leonard coached the Pacers for most of their ABA tenure. Actually, was oh he was Spurs right? Uh, that Brown? was later, but yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't oh, think Larry Brown was... coached until later in the seventies. I um, actually, um, Rick Barry and Larry Brown were roommates in um, in Washington. He was one of the uh, few players th- that uh, Rick kind of ended up, you know, being close friends with at least for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Um, Oh, he was Carolina Cougars and then Denver Nuggets. Yeah, okay. He did okay. do some coaching. You're right. You're, he did do some coaching. But he yeah. ended up just coaching. Like, wh- when he actually be- got in the league, he coached, like, primarily ABA teams forever, too, which is, is a funny thing as well. Oh, yeah, because he, he you know, the New Nets Jersey. The he went to the Nets after yeah, Denver. Yeah, the Clippers in Indiana. 92 yeah. season. Yeah, and, he, and the Pacers, too. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. That, that was – I hadn't noticed that before, that basically, yeah, most of his early career is all Pacers – or all ABA uh, teams. So, um. So they have a good run there. Uh, however, there, the with all the lawsuits of things that are in court, um, a U.S. District Court uh, issues a preliminary injunction that prohibits Barry from playing from any other team other than the Warriors after his contract with the Nets ended. Basically, it would have meant that he would have had to um, sit out another season if he wanted to continue playing for the Nets. So at that point, he decided that he would just instead um, go to go back to the Warriors, which, you know, he had wanted to do at different points, although he did. He did finally seem happy in New York. He did uh, go, you know, Golden State was a place that he wanted to go to um, as well. So, you know, that ended up working out as we are going to see, ended up working pretty out pretty well for him. So, yeah. (laughs) So he adjusts his game, becomes a, you know, a better shooter, better passer and and primary ball handler, a kind of one of the, I don't, a lot of people, there's always who, the, who gets the credit for being the first point forward, but he certainly is among those who definitely played that um, position. Yeah. One thing that's noticeable is that his free throw drawing weight does go way down kind of around this point of his career. Um, uh, and, you know, again, he's older at this point, late late twenties, getting into his thirties. Uh, he's had the injuries and, you know, adjusting his style of game. So that's, understandable but that does sort of reduce his effectiveness overall as a score although he still is you know quite a tremendous player yeah absolutely and and the the assist percentage as i mentioned that rised a ton you went from uh um 
to 20 point, uh, tw- uh, 24.7 was his percentage that, that yeah. first year back um, in the NBA. And the previous high was 18.5, and then he never went below 20% again. So he definitely became a, uh, a more facilitator. And, yeah, it's, it's, the, the point forward thing is very interesting. But, yeah, he um, he's one that definitely should get a lot of the credit for it. I mean, it, it's – it's it's at that time. I mean, he is really unique in that that sense of of being that height, being that sort of everything, and and being you know a distributor, becoming more of a distributor than a slasher. So interesting though. It's 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 fun to watch this kind of evolution of his game. Definitely, and he um, interesting for the rest of his career. Um, he never plays less than seventy nine games except for his final season, which he played 72. So injuries are not really a major issue for him for the, um, for the rest of his career. Um, so some of the key players that he ended up playing with on that, um, that, that first Warriors team, uh, Nate Thurman's still there. He's in his ninth season. Uh, Jeff Mullins at shooting guard. Uh, Cassie Russell, who had played for, I believe, the Lakers and the Knicks. Um, who was, you know, kind of an important reserve player. You mentioned George Johnson, uh, who uh, he taught to shoot underhanded uh, free throws. Um, so those were kind of the uh, the key guys uh, that he was going with. So, so they had uh, so they had Thurmond and um, and uh, Barry again together. Even though Thurmond at this point was he was still an effective player, but he was getting older. Um, obviously, and um, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't last. With, he ended up really wouldn't last with the uh, team uh, too much longer. Um, they end up having a, a pretty strong season. They win uh, 47 games, um, and they actually uh, beat the Milwaukee Bucks, who had 60 wins that year who, with Kareem in the uh, in the playoffs, but they fall in the uh, conference finals to the, uh, to the Lakers. Uh, I think that was that was that Wilts last year with the uh, yeah I think that was Wilts last year with the uh, Lakers so seventy two seventy three yeah. I I believe yeah, so was, yeah they were sixty and twenty two uh, they and they lost to the Knicks in the finals that year that was kind of the end of their run I think mm-hmm. uh, West left was gone right after that as well so um uh, so he loses to uh, rivals Bill Sharman and uh, Wilt Chamberlain um. So in 73-74, they miss the playoffs. Um, they do end up uh, drafting Gus Williams to play point guard. Uh, there's sort of some talk about kind of how his role as ball handler clashed with Barry's. There's also kind of some split uh, about that. There's a um, there's a piece written about how um, uh, that year, uh, talking just kind of about the Barry and... Um, the return of the Barry and Thurmond uh, partnership and, you know, how they're, um, you, you know, playing so well uh, together, even though this actually, you know, I think that was written in, no, this was, I'm sorry. This was written for the 73, 74. So they've been back together for a while though. I'm not really sure why it would see, it seems like a piece that'd be more appropriate for being written the previous season. But anyway, um, he also set his career high, uh, this season, 64 points, uh, at home versus the Blazers. Um, and then the, uh, the next season, the Warriors, uh, end up being, uh, retooled. They, uh, they hire a general manager, their, um, their owner who was, I don't, who was, um, I, I always have trouble pronouncing his, uh, last name, but, um, um, oh, I know. Yeah, I, I, 
am not entirely positive. Yeah, it's like Franklin Muley. Muley is word. I, I, that's where I go, but it might be something different. He's basically like, there, there's the whole, like all these sports illustrated articles. And even in this book, there's just like, he always feels like Rick Barry is like the guy, like the one who got away and spends like a whole lot of time and energy getting him back and, and so forth. And he's kind of like a, a sort of a, um, a fixture of both like ridicule and like awe of just like how he's able to succeed. And he always like makes these savvy things, even though he seems a little bit um, (laughs) dumb for whatever Mm. reason, Um, you know, but uh, he ends up actually um, uh, hiring a, a a general manager who kind of reshapes the team a little bit, ends up uh, trading uh, Thurmond and some other players, uh, Dick Vertlieb, in fact, was the new GM. Um, and then they end up signing uh, Jamal Wilkes, who uh, ends up being a, having a huge impact as a rookie. Also, Phil Smith, who becomes an important player. Clifford Ray comes over in that in that trade for Thurman. So they're kind of retooling the team. It's a much younger team. Um, really, uh, Barry and Clifford Ray are the only, uh, or I guess, I'm sorry, Barry and Jeff Mullins, and to a little bit of an extent, Clifford Ray are the only, you know, real veterans on the team. Um, and they definitely, uh, they, they play more of a, of a fast paced, uh, style. They go, they go 10 deep. Um, Barry kind of reshaping his reputation a little bit where he, practices a little bit harder. He's the captain. He tries to keep his temper a little bit in check. Um, there's an essay article that talks about they're not troubled by racial disharmony, which might have been expected in a club whose blacks outnumber whites 10 to 2. I'm not really sure why that would be expected, but, you know, that that is what was thought at the time, perhaps. <laughs> different, in the it was SI, a different era, uh, yes. Area. Uh, so he hasn't had any problems. Those that existed back when I was in college don't exist as much for the younger players today. Um and they also mentioned uh, personal problems that caused brief separations from his wife, Pam, and they had recently adopted uh, Shannon, to, uh, who became their fifth child as well. Um, and he had a really strong season that year, averaged 30.6 per game, shot 46.4%, led the league in free throw percentage and steals per game, and they, he, they had an even better postseason. Um, they they uh, finished... Um, Excuse me. They were 40 and 14, which was strong, but they end up um, beating the Supersonics and then having like a really classic series against the Bulls that went seven games and had a lot of, um, you know, cl- had a lot of close games. A lot, a lot of the games, um, all but two, ended up being five points or closer. I think so. And that, of course, uh, Thurman was um, on the uh, was on the Bulls uh, for that series. So that's sort of interesting um, that, you know, he ends up uh, being against his old warrior teammates and they end up going through and then they end up um, sweeping the bullets that year in that series. Um, and the bullets were 60 and 22, you know, heavily favored in that series, you know, seemingly a better team. But um, but but. Barry led them through and Barry was clearly like the guy like carrying that team. Yeah. I mean, he really, you know, he played by far the most minutes, by far the most points. I mean, he really, that was clearly the best season of, uh, you know, as a pro and he only finished third in MVP voting, which, you know, was kind of a, uh, uh, apparently that was voted on by the players at the time. And that would sort of be a, um, you know, seemingly a bad decision. 
Yes, yeah, and, and at that time, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit, the, the league that, that Barry left initially had changed a lot, and a lot of it was racially as well. It was becoming a predominantly black uh, league, and, and he sort of alludes to that too, but sort of stays out of it that, that because the players sort of picked that they wouldn't pick a white guy to win it or whatever. They would more pick, you know. No, there was just a lot of issue, and this, this would happen more and more throughout the next, you know, the rest of Barry's career is that it would be a, a very interesting league for a while, and especially so when, when the ABA merged with it, it got even worse to a point where a lot of people, I mean, it became the league was popular still, but it was sort of waning a little bit because a lot of fans were having issues with that, of the fact that it was becoming predominantly black. And obviously they would have to sort of work through that. And the NBA has obviously done well since then. But this is a very weird time for yeah, the NBA. Yeah, well, it's obviously a, a weird ways. time for society, too, because, you know, uh, black people are demanded to be like, hey, let's be treated equally. And people who aren't used yeah. to that are like, that's weird. Why do you want that? So, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and that obviously happened in the in the NBA degree as well. And the players are just having more power and the owners are resenting it. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure it was interesting for somebody in Rick Barry's position being, you know, one of the few white stars and certainly benefiting from racism in a sense because, you know, he, he had probably had more endorsements than he he would have if he was black. That's almost certainly true and had opportunities yeah. that he would have had. Yet, you know, some of the black players didn't look at, you know, he, he said he mentions, you know, feeling racial tension at the time. He was actually pretty smart about not putting his foot in his mouth when it came to matters of race. Like he was he spoke relatively, you know, intelligently about that and, and, and was, you know, um, talked about his you know black teammates well he, he didn't see he didn't seem to have the problems you know that he would have when talking about other things but um but yeah i mean it definitely was just something that was a part of what was going on in the uh in the nba and in the whole world in there and, and obviously um uh encapsulate another thing that you know is an important part of the era that, that he played yeah Absolutely. All right. So I think we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're, in fact, going to talk about a, a lot of the changes that happened in um, in Rick Barry's career. Hi, I'm Rick Barry with three-time MVP Larry Bird. Larry, you've been called the best player ever. How does it feel? You should know, Rick. You were pretty good in your time. What I do know is this year's official NBA catalog is the best ever. Wow. Great-looking team clothes and accessories. All right, we're back here talking about the life and career of Rick Barry. One of the things that we wanted to talk about is the massive change that happened throughout Barry's career. And we talked about that in our interview with Curtis. And, and, and we've just sort of talked about it in general is when he started and he sort of was the one of the patriarchs of this weird, dark era of the NBA. But it was a fun era of the NBA because a ton of changes happened, a ton of new things happened. You know, he comes in, he's still sort of in the little tail end of the Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, that sort of stuff. Then you have this big era that, as we mentioned, is a little, mar- a little murky, a little dark. And then you have, obviously, the Magic Bird was his final year, I believe, was was when Bird and Magic, uh, their rookie seasons. But then you have this weird sort of in-between era where there was just so many changes going on in the world and then in the NBA as well. You have, obviously, the free agency and free agency compensation. We talked about that a little bit of him sort of basically, in a lot of ways, helping to abolish the reserve clause or at least giving it – I don't know if he was the one that, that necessarily abolished it, but giving it a lot of yeah. – 
a lot of insight or people were starting to look at it and go, yeah, is that right that that's there? I mean, yeah. Oscar Robertson was the one who eventually did sure. it. And then obviously Kurt Flood, obviously in baseball was the one that really in a lot of ways broke all the walls down. But Rick Barry has a lot of, of being one of the first guys to really challenge it. So interesting in that way. Um, a ton of other changes as well in the NBA. Obviously the three pointer stands without reason. And, and that's, that's one of the biggest evolutions in the game of basketball in my mind. It just completely changes how, the game is played, spacing, dribble. I mean, everything changes because of having this line where you can get an extra point if you shoot from back here. It's just it's something we take for granted these days. But when you watch old games, it's just it, it, it's not there. Um, you have a college undergrads being drafted and the different changes of, OK, now juniors are getting picked. Now freshmen are getting, you know, yeah. this sort of stuff that was it, you just didn't do it. It was just unheard of. Um, we mentioned, at the, you know, in before. The territorial picks where Barry was – his draft was the last of the territorial picks. That is completely gone now and, and you know, guys from New York are immediately going to the New York Knicks. There, there's a lot more of a – the draft is, is really what we think of it now uh, today. Obviously, the NBA going from nine teams – uh, in his rookie season in 67 to 23 teams in 81 with the influx of the ABA, with the influx of a bunch of other, you know, just new teams, expansion teams, that sort of stuff. Uh, this was kind of interesting. I, I never really knew when this came about, but in 1971, the, the NBA logo was created and it's obviously not changed <laughs> at all. There's been little tweaks here and there, but it's still the same quote Jerry West. I mean, they, they like to say it's not Jerry West. It could be anybody, but it's Jerry West. Um, there's changes in referees and, and free throws as well, which are pretty interesting. Yeah, they went from uh, two refs to three refs, I believe, in the late 70s. Um, there was, you know, before, I think it was Barry's last season, but Barry's last season was the first year of the NBA three-pointer. He, of course, he had the three-pointer in the ABA for a few years uh, when he played there. Um, and I believe that 80 was the last season for where you could shoot for uh, two for three uh Three three tries to make two free throws. That was the uh, that was I believe the last season for that. So that was a, a you know NBA rule. That that wasn't that didn't apply in every single um, free throw situation, but it applied in a lot of them. I, I, I forget mm-hmm. exactly. Um, it's very weird. Yeah, yeah it's hard it, to. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it's one of those confusing <laughs> things. But um, yeah, it's funny with the college undergrads. Like even it, it's funny to watch like the eighty three and eighty four drafts. Like even as late as that, maybe even later, they. Those players, anyone who wasn't a four-year graduate was called a hardship case. It was mm-hmm. funny. That was like, you know, basically you, your way of avoiding that was to claim hardship. And, and that can be done in many different ways. But it's, it's funny that that terminology lasted for so long, even though it was obviously not for hardship reasons at, at a certain point, you know. Um, but, yeah, it, I mean, I think the one thing that I think is, is – Underlooked at it's just amazingly how in 14 years the NBA could add 14 teams and just the amount of you know just how tumultuous that would be. in a downtime too in a time that a lot of people would consider you know it, it, you sort of assume that expansion teams would come when the league's doing well and they weren't I mean yeah, by and large they weren't doing I, I, great I don't at this know point. if they, I mean, were, they were doing okay I don't know but. if they were necessarily doing any worse than they had, were before that you know I mean they they got some TV money they got a CBS deal I mean I I, I do think I mean. There were definitely times in which attendance was down, but I do think I think the idea that like the '70s were some sort of dark age is a little bit like like the early '80s weren't necessarily much worse than the um, than the late '70s. It was just mm-hmm. because now there's bird and magic, and eventually things got really good in the mid to late '80s. We think of that as like a goal, you know, part of the golden right. era when really it didn't start right away, kind of thing. So I, I think there might be a little bit. That that might be a little bit overstated, but it certainly is, you know, um, but certainly is true that there was just so much change and so much, um, you know, 
so many tumultuous things going on. But yeah, I, that that whole thing of just you know adding so many teams. Of course, they added four because of the '76 uh, ABA merger, um, and uh, you know they added you know several in the late '60s, early '70s, and uh, the, and the Mavericks got uh, they were the last team to be added uh, in '81, at least for until the end of the '80s. Uh, it was funny that they waited until like the the, the league finally you know grew a whole lot and they're like oh i guess we should add some more teams so and now we have 30 <laughs> you never know we might and i think for a while uh, we're gonna be a long way away i think from you think so in your mind do you think i don't know i i i think i mean i think they really would like get a team in seattle and there isn't really like an obvious candidate to move so mm-hmm. you know but they probably have to add two I, I think there are cities with arenas and with markets where it could work you know columbus Columbus, we'll take a team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, I know we're a little close to Cleveland, but we don't like Cleveland. We don't go there, so we'll, we'll, <laughs> Ooh, yeah. we'll go to teams in Columbus. I promise. I love you, Cleveland. I'm just kidding. Maybe. So uh, I don't know. That, that, that's about it. That, that's pretty much covers yeah, the. Uh, you know, like I said, that's just a, that's a lot of. You know, uh, uh, like I mean, those are things we take for granted. I mean, free agency and the three pointer, right? Exactly. A bunch of new teams, yeah, <laughs> and pretty much every team that's right. that's around. Yeah, now. I mean, I mean, like, the thing, and and of course, more playoff rounds come with more teams. Yeah, the yeah. The, the modern playoff uh, system didn't really come into effect until '84. You know, with uh, with the number of rounds that that number of teams that go in, but um, but there were definitely big changes between those t- that time as well. So um, you know, no no wonder that like we've that era is just sort of tricky, you know, just because of, you know, how much th- things really changed, you know? Yeah. So, um, um, so yeah, I guess we'll, uh, we'll take a little break and then we will talk about, uh, the late career of Rick Barry. Okay. We're back, uh, talking about the uh, late career of, uh, Rick Barry and we are in the 75, 76 season. Uh, Rick Barry has just, uh, won his first and only NBA championship. Uh, but you know, the Warriors are still an exciting team. They actually have a better regular season record of, uh, 59 and 23. They've, they are first of the then 18 teams in the, uh, in the NBA, um, this is actually the last season before the uh, before the merger of the ABA and the NBA, and um, and I believe this is actually the first season for the uh, New Orleans Jazz. So, um, but they uh, or maybe it was their second season. Regardless, they the Jazz are the newest team in the um, in the league, and um, they uh, there's a, a really good another good SI article. Uh, Talking about just how the the Warriors play, their uh, they have a they they play a bigger rotation than most teams play. Um, talks about their coach Al Adels, who was of course he played with Rick Barry during the during the sixties and was a famous really you know tough guy that nobody messed with type player and. Uh, he says that you know who <laughs> got in a fight in the previous year in the NBA Finals, like the last game. Yes. Did Did you watch that video? Um, I of, of when the Warriors win I, the, yes. the championship. Yeah. In that game, um, I forgot who it was. It gave a real hard foul to Rick Barry, so he just ran out to the court and started shoving the guy and like throwing punches yes. and got thrown out of the the, the championship <laughs> game. But that's okay because you know. And then he said that was a rallying cry for the team or that helped. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Of course, if they lost, it would have been a distraction sure, right. because they won. It's a rallying yeah, cry. So it'd been all over. Skip Bayless would have been you know on top of that guy today. <laughs> 
So, but he talks about like, oh, you, you know, there's everyone has a stereotypes and, and, you know, and people sooner everyone just accepts them instead of wondering why things work. And he, you know, so he decides to try to do things that he has. He, he, you know, you sometimes he uses four guards randomly at once, sometimes two centers on the car on on the court you know he just does you know he just tries to do things differently a little bit um and it, it took him a while to kind of realize that nate thurman didn't fit in so they um you know made things work they kind of talk about the racial component of the team but also you know one things that you know barry rick barry and jeff mullins are the only two players who are over then older than 27 Every, everyone are the kids um talks about sort of the the quiet underneath understated nature of jamal wilkes um in, he's like a, a character in a novel whose true importance is not revealed until it is time for the message to be delivered or the princess rescued. <laughs> uh, sports writers back then, they just had a way, you know. There, yeah, it's uh, man reading this stuff in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. It's a different, different era. And talking about how you know what a what a great defensive player uh, he was, uh, you know, shutting down Spencer Haywood and Bob Love and Elvin Hayes, and uh, in the championship year, um, and. And but there is an interesting tone at the end where Golden State wins now because everyone is fresh, ambitious, willing. Everyone except Barry is unknown, but they are known together, and Barry aside, all make the same kind of money. Will it work when Wilkes and Smith and Williams arrive at greatness? Will there just be much to go around then? And and then it sort of leads because because this Warriors team ends up disappointing a bit in the postseason. They um. They beat the Pistons, who were still in the who were in the West at that point, um, and they end up um, they beat the Pistons, but they end up losing to the uh, Phoenix Suns that year, who um, end up playing in a classic final series against the Celtics. Um, they're led by uh, uh, Paul Westfall and Alvin Adams, and uh, it goes seven games. It's a another series with. Um, you know, five games that are decided by seven game seven points or fewer. Uh, in fact, the Warriors are up. Um, they're up um, three games to two, and then they lose by one to Phoenix in Game Six, and they end up falling at home in Game Seven. So, um, you know, a, a tough. Despite their you know regular season dominance, they fall in the playoffs, which just happens kind of randomly a lot in the seventies for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and. Um, and then the next year, they 76, 77, they win 49 games, but they end up falling to the uh, Lakers in uh, seven games um, in the conference seven piles again. So they uh, they have a lot of uh, seven. They have a lot of um, a. Uh, Excuse me. They have a lot of seven game series that they uh, they play. Yeah. You know, so and this era is it's a very weird. And, and that's one of the things that's that's always interesting about this time, too, is when you sort of go back in NBA history and you talk about, you know, the champions and the dominant teams and all that sort of stuff. This area, this era is just weird because you have just like these teams that you assume should be dominant teams and they just like get upset randomly in the play. I mean, like you don't get you very rarely get that anymore where a team that's sort of is the top team in the league or is one of the top few teams just gets upset by like random. And, and it seems to happen a lot here and you get this area is just filled with just weird random champions. I mean, this is, I believe when the Hawks get their title, you got obviously the Rick Barry thing. There's a lot of like kind of one title win yeah. things on the Sonics, yeah, uh, the, the Sonics this era later in this era, the Portland the, Trailblazers. Yeah. It's yeah. just a, it's just a weird era of just like, you, you just, I don't know. It's hard to explain either. And I think that's one of the another reasons why a lot of people sort of don't remember this one. Cause there's not really a, there's not a team that defines it. Yeah. 
there's just numerous teams, numerous players, numerous you know that that do it. So it's it's very interesting though when you go through and watch these these just weird upsets or, or what I would assume is upsets you know in the playoffs. Sadly, Rich, unfortunately, the Hawks actually won their title in uh, in '58. So. Oh, was that? Oh, they weren't. Okay. Yeah, I think I was. Not. Who was I thinking of? Oh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, sure. <laughs> sorry to get your hopes up there. It's a little sad, but uh, well, the, the Warriors won in 75, Celtics in 76, the Blazers in 77, the Bullets in 78, and the Sonics in 79. So Maybe I'm thinking of the Sonics. Yeah. So, sorry. That's okay. I mean, you know. At least we still have a team. <laughs> At least you have so, a team. Yeah, yeah I said, come on. Go. Don't, don't, don't you, um, you got a team. So, the Bucks. That's another weird one, too. You get the one, uh, the few Bucks years. But that's Korean, yeah, so that, that right, makes sense. Exactly. But, yeah, exactly. So yeah, they, they were 71, I think. So, um, And they made it a couple more times, too. But Yeah, oh, they, they made it a yeah. few years later, yeah. So, uh, the, um, so the 76-77 um, Warriors are kind of reconstituted. They have a rookie, uh, Robert Parrish, who ends up playing for uh, – the Warriors for a few years. It's kind of a forgotten point in his career um, as well. So they're 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 changed a little bit. They end up um, and then it, after they fall to the uh, Lakers in that uh, series, they um, they get reshuffled a little bit again. Um, let's see. Uh, Gus Williams ends up getting traded to the uh, Sonics, and then he'd lead the Sonics to the 78 finals and the 79 title. So that probably wasn't the uh, best decision that they uh, ever made. <laughs> um, and there may have been some tension with Barry on kind of ball handling duties or um, or so on, although that that point I definitely would have picked um, Williams over Rick Barry. But, you know, I guess Rick Barry was better, certainly better known. So. Um, and then the 77-78 season, which is Barry's last in at Golden State. They're 43-39. and 39. Um, They still have Clifford Ray and Phil Smith. Uh, they end up getting uh, Ricky Green, who is later a – he's a bit of a bit player on this team, but he ends up being like a really important um, guard for the Jazz in the yeah. 80s. And in fact, he and – John Stockton were, you know, co-point guards. I mean, he was ahead of um, John Stockton really for the first three or four years of Stockton's career before, you know, he got older and uh, and they saw what they had in Stockton. But so um, I basically the, the big highlight probably for um, for Barry was he had his last 50 point game in 78. He scored 55 points at home against the Knicks again, doing well against the Knicks uh, on March 28th, 78. So um they um, they didn't even end up actually making the postseason in his uh, final year. So uh, so you know a little bit of a disappointment. Not not really sure exactly what happened there because they you know I mean it, I guess they lost at that point they lost Jamal Wilkes too. So um, yeah, and he was a big part. Yeah, he, he was an important part. player for them too. And I think he left as a free agent if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, you know, he ended up at, he ended up at the Lakers, of course, and ended up being a pretty important part of the um, you know of, of the early uh, Lakers uh, championship teams. So, um, so yeah, they they you know had some really they had some really good players. Uh, it just kind of seemed to uh, fall apart for them. Yeah, so. never really. And uh, and then at that point, um, Rick Barry signed as a, a free agent with the seventy eight seventy nine um, Rockets, and they finished forty seven and thirty three. They lost in the first round to the Atlanta Hawks uh, in it was only a two game series. The first um, round, which or, or 
or I'm sorry, it was a three-game series, but they, they lost. Um, you, you probably couldn't do a two-game series. It was a three-game series, and they lost, <laughs> they lost two games. Uh, they were swept, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure what you call a two-game sweep, but, you know. Um, That's a sweep. I think it's still a sweep, I mean, a sweep, right? I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, not, it's, really, it's not like a gentleman's <laughs> sweep, because that would be impossible. Um, but um, uh, let's see. They were 47 and 35, but they look like a team that on paper should have been better. Like they had Mike Dunleavy. They had Moses Malone, who was in his fourth year. They had Calvin Murphy, uh, Rudy Tomjanovich. Like, yeah, it's a good Robert team. Reed, who was, it was young. But yeah, they, they had like they finished 47 and 35. And then the next year they finished 41 and 41. That's Del Harris's first year as coach. Um, they They do get past the Spurs in the first round in 80. But they are swept by the Celtics the uh, next season. Um, so it's funny that the Houston Rockets are in the Eastern Conference. Um, and yeah, they, and they, the, the Bucks are in the Western. Right, they end up, <laughs> it's just like we, my we mind. Made, the season after Barry retires, we end up basically having no, the alignment that we come to expect today in conference. They, they basically right, right. switch to everything around so it made geogra- geographic sense for the most part. So, um, you know, that's pretty much the. Um, you know, uh, that, that's pretty much um, it for uh, Barry's career. The last two seasons, he, he, he's clearly aging. You know, he uh, he slows down. All of his, um, you know, all of his numbers start to um, falter. Um, his free throw percentage is still great. He, I believe, he led the league in free throw percentage seven times. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Um, and one year he did not lead the league, and it was uh, nine sixteen. So <laughs> that's, that's going <laughs> to be the most years. Uh, I forget. I for, they, they mentioned a name. I forget offhand. That's got to suck for Rick Barry. Yeah. I bet he was better pissed. Yeah, I, mean, I bet he uh, was here, pissed too. Yeah, that's something that let's, probably he would that would get under his skin to not. Let's see. Which uh, oh, the nine sixteen year, yeah. the seventy six seventy seven. Yeah, like let's his his scoring average dropped from a twenty three point one to thirteen point five, and you know, and he was starting to play like thirty two minutes a game last season. He played twenty five minutes a game, so he was clearly a role player um you know and um the warriors ended up getting this was still the point in which free agency you you got a compensation player for um if if your team signed a free agents the warriors ended up getting john lucas as their compensation player oh, okay so. it was ernie de G- oh yeah gregio yeah ernie de gregio yeah the buffalo. That, that was who it was so the Buffalo Braves at that point, or what, what were they at that point? Yeah, they, they were, were the, um, they were the Braves, I think. It's still yeah, okay, point. yeah. Um, ninety, uh, yeah, ninety four point five. So yeah, earned it, earned it. It wasn't just the one. <laughs> Good for him. Oh yeah, yeah. And he didn't even have to do it underhand. He didn't have, he didn't have to be exactly. So there you go, girl. So good for him. <laughs> um, uh, so I um. So I guess we'll take a little break and then we will uh, finish up with a little bit of talk about uh, the rest of uh, Rick Barry's uh, life and career and anything else uh, to that to sum up uh, his legacy. All right, cool. Whenever you're ready, right. we can kind of. All right. Well, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more about some things that uh, ha- you know about Rick Barry that might be interesting, or uh, just talking about kind of the legacy of his um, overall career. Um, he was a four-time All ABA First Team, a four-time All Star in the ABA, a five-time All NBA First Team. Um, Eight-time NBA All-Star, uh, Finals MVP, and an NBA champion in '75. 
Um, and, you know, Rich, what about some of his advanced statistics? Yeah, the advanced stats and <clears throat> some of these, I mean, like uh, a few I really subscribe to, uh, a few not so much. But I just thought it was interesting to sort of look at um, at where he sort of ranks all time in a lot of these. Um, player efficiency rating per, uh, he's 44. Fifth all time, which is uh, not bad. That's pretty good. Um, win shares per forty eight. He's actually sixty third all time. I'm surprised by some of these, and, and these are to mind you, these are combined ABA and NBA. So these are taking them both in together. So we're obviously not we're, we're counting his ABA stuff a little bit as well. Um, I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, seventh all time in true shooting for the ABA, but uh, he's not in the top two fifty in the NBA ABA all time, which is was interesting because a lot of the ones he sort of he sort of still sort of hovers in there, but this one he's not there at all in the NBA yeah. uh, ABA combined and, ones. And, uh, and that probably has a lot to do with the reduction in free throws that uh, he right, had yes. as, as his career moved on. I think that was certainly would be a big part of that. Also, he lacks the benefit. I mean, he did have the free throw in his, in his last season in the NBA, but he doesn't really get the benefit um for that at all um you know for his nba career yeah exactly and then on uh, 29th all-time in offensive win shares um one of the best ones though obviously and and, and we've sort of remarked about his, his playoff you know his maybe his misfortunes in the playoffs and losing a few times here and there but he was sixth all-time in playoff points per game the only guys better than him are michael jordan Allen iverson jerry west kevin durant and lebron james so it's good company to be in um, and that, but yeah, overall, I mean, I, I, I had assumed his advanced stats would be a little bit better than they are, but they're still not bad. I mean, for being, he's still in that upper echelon of the NBA, um, overall. And there was never really one thing that he did, you know what I mean? Where there's not one thing that would really stick out or make these, the, the, the advanced stats really pop too much. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I, you know, he, his percentage, his overall shooting percentage, you know, career-wise was just, you know, 449, which isn't bad, but is not, like, absolutely, um, you know, fantastic. I, you know, and he was still, you know, basically, as the NBA has, you know, gone along, shooting percentages have just, you know, gone up. And, and early in his career, particularly, was a time in which, you know, there were still a lot of chuckers going on. There were a lot of low shooting percentages. So, you know you got to put that a little bit in context of the era in which he, in which he played too, obviously. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And, and some of the, of course, you know, some of the controversial things that, um, that, you know, Rick got involved in, um, there was obviously the, uh, the infamous incident that Curtis alluded to where, um, you know, he was broadcasting with, uh, Bill Russell, uh, and they're showing a picture of Bill Russell, I believe, from the 1960 Olympic team, and then um, Rick Berry refers to it as a watermelon grin, and uh, the, the YouTube on this is, is long gone, uh, long been disappeared, um, so, so it's, it's hard to see. It's described very well in Bill Simmons's book, and, you know, I, my guess, you know, like, I can't really, I've done a lot of research on Rick, and I can't really find, like, a whole lot of or really anyone at all claiming that he was particularly racist or, yeah. or like, you know, from that respect, the people didn't really have complaints about him. I kind of consider this a little bit of like a, like he probably felt like he knew Russell enough to kind of make that joke. And then he realized yeah, that and, he didn't, and that, was, and that it wasn't acceptable and that kind of thing. So that's, yeah, that's sort of how I think of it too. Like you have guys and, and not saying that it's right at all, but when he grew up, that was probably just a term that was used for, you know what I mean? I'm not sure. saying that that's correct at all, right. but I could totally, see you know big dick barry you know <laughs> mentioning that a bunch of times and barry just sort of offhandedly 
sort of letting his guard down and just being like, yeah, you know, kind of joking around in a lot of ways. But obviously, if, if you watch the video and, and know about it, Russell didn't take it that way. And and I think literally turned his back <laughs> like in the middle of the broadcast yeah. to Barry, which, which was an uncomfortable situation for everybody. Yeah, but yeah, I, I don't see it as because there's nothing else that came up at any point. Wow. And he, he obviously was in a super racially charged era and never said anything else. So for him to, yeah. at this point, say something, I, I don't see it as, yeah, I see it as Nelson a lapse in judgment more report, than like anyway, right. an inherent, like, yeah. you know, any sort of racism. He also sense, makes a yeah. comment. He does, he's doing some broadcasting from Michael Jordan <laughs> in the Doug contest. And I call that one the Chinese Superman because he comes in kind of sideways and slanted, which, first of all, that I don't one. even know what that means. And, um... But, yeah, I, I mean, I, like, I think a Rick Barry is, like, a guy from an older generation who thinks it's appropriate to tell racist jokes. And obviously, yeah, like my grandpa. Not, like, right. like, like, like our a lot of people's grandpas, grandpas. yes. Exactly. Yeah, it's just like, uh, you can't say yeah, that anymore. It's like, like, it's it's like, like well, yeah, you whatever, shouldn't have said it you know. then either. But, you know, like, it's just like, yeah, grandpa. You know, it's just like, yeah, you, you, that's, you know. And, yeah, it's wrong, obviously. It's unfortunate. But it's, it's it, it, I'm... Yeah, I'm not making less, an excuse for I'm it, way but yeah, less you get why. Yeah. By it that I am by like actual like institutional like racism like powers that yeah. be like you know um, holding people down that that kind of thing. So it, it, they, I think these things have to pre appreciate on the scale in which they happen. Sure. So yeah, but definitely there are a lot of people. You know, there there, there were some pieces that you know we mentioned the um, Rick Barry is a bad father piece. There's also a 1983 Tony Kornheiser SI um, article that weirdly I cannot find on the SI vault. Um, it's like one of the few. Like it was linked to a few years ago, but I think when Sports Illustrated did a recent redesign, and I think that their um, I for whatever reason those links don't work anymore and for whatever reason it can't be found but there there are some quotes from it that people say it's just like guys like robert parish um like you said he had a bad attitude he's always looking down at you mike dunleavy says he lacks diplomacy if he if they send him to the un he'd end up starting world war three and then a warriors executive ken macker saying you'll never find a bunch of players sitting around talking about the good old days with rick his teammates and opponents generally and thoroughly despite detested him but then there's a friend of his who had been a former what do you teammate. really think guys? yeah <laughs> billy polter said if you if you got to know rick you'd have realized what a good guy he was but around the league they thought of him as the most arrogant guy ever half the players disliked rick the other half hated him so <laughs> i love that yeah so you know it's just one of those things that like I, I, I don't think that probably Rick Barry is as bad of a guy as his reputation is. Like, I, I bet, like, if you did get to know him, you probably would like him. But he just has that exterior for whatever reason that is just so yeah. terrible. And, like, and, and the ABA thing is, is pretty interesting, too, because that's one that always people are, oh, he's money hungry and all that sort of stuff. And he had to go out of his way and say, look, guys, I made less money going to the ABA. I mean, their contracts were identical. Yeah. He said he just wanted to, you know, he wanted to do different stuff. He wanted to break the reserve, but he was always sort of painted in a weird. Yeah. I, I feel like well, because he didn't, he didn't talk. I, I don't think he addressed situations properly. So I think that people sort of narratives got built about him, and he didn't really do a good job of sort of dispelling them, yeah. or, or you know what I mean. Where if he was a better articulator and could actually say what he really meant, or what he felt, or what he was doing, it would be a lot better. Whereas he's he's. Or, yeah, I, I like or him maybe a lot if a, he didn't always say what he meant and he felt. That's that true. Would, yeah, he didn't really have a filter either. Yeah. Which, his book actually does a decent job, I think, of kind of giving his side and, and makes him maybe a little more sympathetic than you might otherwise be. Whether it's yeah. a trick or whether it's, you know, a good um, – a set, you know, a, a better way of of him expressing himself, or, or or through his, you know, co-writer who actually also co-wrote Bill Libby, who also co-wrote a, um, a 
Jerry West book around the uh, same Mr. Clutch uh, Jerry West book around the same time. Um, you know, I think that um, you, you know th- th- there's some things there that I, I, I think are interesting, and, and, and he's pretty like I mean, he definitely says some things that make him look pretty unsympathetic too. But it, it is. Yeah. Like I kind of said before, I, I do think that someone who is able to kind of criticize themselves and have some self-reflection, even though in a lot of ways Rick showed that like he didn't really see himself very well, particularly when it came to being a dad. Um, but, but I still think he did enough of it where I can I can kind of take some of the like, OK, you say some kind of bad things about other people. <laughs> you're critical. Mm-hmm. You're very critical of other people sure. as well. So if you're critical about yourself, I can accept that more than I can if you just like, you know, if you're not able to take criticism or be critical of yourself. Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Rich, uh, uh, I guess, you know, I guess we've uh, talked about all about we uh, can about Rick Barry. Um, It's uh, great to uh, talk basketball with you and I look forward to doing it again. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com podcast. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.